What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Book Nine, Chapter Twelve, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Twelve. Before the beginning of the campaign, Rostov had received a letter from his parents, in which they told him briefly of Natasha's illness and the breaking off of her engagement to Prince Andrew which they explained by Natasha's having rejected him, and again asked Nicholas to retire from the army and return home. On receiving this letter, Nicholas did not even make any attempt to get leave of absence or to retire from the army, but wrote to his parents that he was sorry Natasha was ill and her engagement broken off, and that he would do all he could to meet their wishes. To Sonia he wrote separately. "'Adored friend of my soul,' he wrote, Nothing but honor could keep me from returning to the country. But now, at the commencement of the campaign, I should feel dishonored, not only in my comrades' eyes, but in my own, if I preferred my own happiness to my love and duty to the fatherland. But this shall be our last separation. Believe me, directly the war is over, if I am still alive and still loved by you, I will throw up everything and fly to you, to press you forever to my ardent breast. It was, in fact, only the commencement of the campaign that prevented Rostov from returning home as he had promised and marrying Sonia. The autumn in Otradno with the hunting, and the winter with the Christmas holidays and Sonia's love, had opened out to him a vista of tranquil rural joys and peace such as he had never known before, and which now allured him. A splendid wife, children, a good pack of hounds, a dozen leashes of smart borzois, agriculture, neighbors, service by election, thought he. But now the campaign was beginning, and he had to remain with his regiment. And since it had to be so, Nicholas Rostov, as was natural to him, felt contented with the life he led in the regiment and was able to find pleasure in that life. On his return from his furlough, Nicholas, having been joyfully welcomed by his comrades, was sent to obtain remounts and brought back from the Ukraine excellent horses which pleased him and earned him commendation from his commanders. 
During his absence he had been promoted captain, and when the regiment was put on war footing with an increase in numbers he was again allotted his old squadron. The campaign began, the regiment was moved into Poland on double pay, new officers arrived, new men and horses, and above all everybody was infected with the merrily excited mood that goes with the commencement of a war, and Rostov, conscious of his advantageous position in the regiment, devoted himself entirely to the pleasures and interests of military service, though he knew that sooner or later he would have to relinquish them. The troops retired from Vilna for various complicated reasons of state, political and strategic. Each step of the retreat was accompanied by a complicated interplay of interests, arguments and passions at headquarters. For the Pavlograd hussars, however, the whole of this retreat during the finest period of summer and with sufficient supplies was a very simple and agreeable business. It was only at headquarters that there was depression, uneasiness and intriguing. In the body of the army they did not ask themselves where they were going or why. If they regretted having to retreat, it was only because they had to leave billets they had grown accustomed to, or some pretty young Polish lady. If the thought that things looked bad chanced to enter anyone's head, he tried to be as cheerful as befits a good soldier, and not to think of the general trend of affairs, but only of the task nearest to hand. First they camped gaily before the Vilna, making acquaintance with the Polish landowners, preparing for reviews and being reviewed by the Emperor and other high commanders. Then came an order to retreat to Svetsiani and destroy any provisions they could not carry away with them. Svetsiani was remembered by the hussars only as the drunken camp, a name the whole army gave to their encampment there, and because many complaints were made against the troops, who, taking advantage of the order to collect provisions, took also horses, carriages and carpets from the Polish proprietors. Rostov remembered Svetsiani, because on the first day of their arrival at that small town he changed his sergeant-major, and was unable to manage all the drunken men of his squadron, who, unknown to him, had appropriated five barrels of old beer. From Svetsiani they retired farther and farther to Drissa, and thence again beyond Drissa, drawing near to the frontier of Russia proper. On the 13th of July the Pavlograds took part in a serious action for the first time. On the 12th of July, on the eve of that action, there was a heavy storm of rain and hail. In general, the summer of 1812 was remarkable for its storms. The two Pavlograd squadrons were bivouacking on a field of rye, which was already in ear but had been completely trodden down by cattle and horses. The rain was descending in torrents, and Rostov, with a young officer named Ilyin, his protégé, was sitting in a hastily constructed shelter. An officer of their regiment, with long moustaches extending on to his cheeks, who, after riding to the staff, had been overtaken by the rain, entered Rostov's shelter. "'I have come from the staff, Count. Have you heard of Raevsky's exploit?' And the officer gave them details of the Saltanov battle, which he had heard at the staff. Rostov, smoking his pipe and turning his head about as the water trickled down his neck, listened inattentively, with an occasional glance at Ilyin, who was pressing close to him. This officer, a lad of sixteen who had recently joined the regiment, was now in the same relation to Nicholas that Nicholas had been to Denisov seven years before. Ilyin tried to imitate Rostov in everything, and adored him as a girl might have done. Zerzhinsky, 
the officer with the long moustache, spoke grandiloquently of the Sultanov Dam being a Russian Thermopylae, and of how a deed worthy of antiquity had been performed by General Rayevsky. He recounted how Rayevsky had led his two sons onto the dam under terrific fire and had charged with them beside him. Rostov heard the story and not only said nothing to encourage Zerzhinsky's enthusiasm, but on the contrary looked like a man ashamed of what he was hearing, though with no intention of contradicting it. Since the campaigns of Austerlitz and of 1807, Rostov knew by experience that men always lie when describing military exploits, as he himself had done when recounting them. Besides that, he had experience enough to know that nothing happens in a war at all as we can imagine or relate it. And so he did not like Zerzhinsky's tale, nor did he like Zerzhinsky himself, who, with his mustaches extending over his cheeks, bent low over the face of his hearer, as was his habit, and crowded Rostov in the narrow shanty. Rostov looked at him in silence. In the first place, there must have been such a confusion and crowding on the dam that was being attacked, that if Rayevsky did lead his sons there, it could have had no effect except perhaps on some dozen men nearest to him, thought he. The rest could not have seen how or with whom Rayevsky came onto the dam. And even those who did see it would not have been much stimulated by it, for what had they to do with Rayevsky's tender paternal feelings when their own skins were in danger? And besides, the fate of the fatherland did not depend on whether they took the Sultanov dam or not, as we are told was the case at Thermopylae. So why should he have made such a sacrifice? And why expose his own children in the battle? I would not have taken my brother Petya there, or even Ilyan, who's a stranger to me but a nice lad, but would have tried to put them somewhere under cover." Nicholas continued to think, as he listened to Zerzinsky. But he did not express his thoughts for in such matters, too, he had gained experience. He knew that this tale redounded to the glory of our arms, and so no one had to pretend not to doubt it, and he acted accordingly. "'I can't stand this any more,' said Ilyin, noticing that Rostov did not relish Zerzinsky's conversation. "'My stockings and shirt, and the water is running on my seat. I'll go and look for shelter. The rain seems less heavy.' Ilyin went out, and Zerzinski rode away. Five minutes later, Ilyin, splashing through the mud, came running back to the shanty. "'Hurrah! Rostov, come quick! I found it! About two hundred yards away there's a tavern where ours have already gathered. We can at least get dry there, and Mary Hendrikovna's there.' Mary Hendrikovna was the wife of the regimental doctor, a pretty young German woman he had married in Poland. The doctor— whether from lack of means or because he did not like to part from his young wife in the early days of their marriage, took her about with him wherever the Hussar regiment went, and his jealousy had become a standing joke among the Hussar officers. Rostov threw his cloak over his shoulders, shouted to Lavrushka to follow with the things, and, now slipping in the mud, now splashing right through it, set off with Ilyin in the lessening rain and the darkness that was occasionally rent by distant lightning. Rostov. Where are you? Here! What lightning! They called to one another. End of Book Nine, Chapter Twelve. Book Nine, Chapter Thirteen of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Thirteen. In the tavern, before which stood the doctor's covered cart, there were already some five officers. Mary Hendrikovna, a plump little blonde German in a dressing jacket and nightcap, was sitting on a broad bench in the front corner. Her husband, the doctor, lay asleep behind her. Rostov and Ilyin, on entering the room, were welcomed with merry shouts and laughter. "'Dear me! How jolly we are!' said Rostov, laughing. "'And why do you stand there gaping?' "'What swells they are! Why, the water streams from them! Don't make our drawing-room so wet!' "'Don't mess Mary Hendrikovna's dress!' cried other voices. Rostov and Ilyin hastened to find a corner where they could change into dry clothes without offending Mary Hendrikovna's modesty. They were going into a tiny recess behind a partition to change, but found it completely filled by three officers who sat playing cards by the light of a solitary candle on an empty box, and these officers would on no account yield their position. Mary Hendrikovna obliged them with the loan of a petticoat to be used as a curtain and behind that screen Rostov and Ilyin, helped by Lavrushka who had brought their kits, changed their wet things for dry ones. A fire was made up in the dilapidated brick stove. A board was found, fixed on two saddles and covered with a horse-cloth. A small samovar was produced and a cellaret and a half-bottle of rum. And having asked Mary Hendrikovna to preside, they all crowded round her. One offered her a clean handkerchief to wipe her charming hands. Another spread a jacket under her little feet to keep them from the damp. Another hung his coat over the window to keep out the draught, and yet another waved the flies off her husband's face, lest he should wake up. "'Leave him alone,' said Mary Hendrikovna, smiling timidly and happily. "'He is sleeping well as it is, after a sleepless night.' "'Oh, no, Mary Hendrikovna!' replied the officer. One must look after the doctor. Perhaps he'll take pity on me some day, when it comes to cutting off a leg or an arm for me." There were only three tumblers. The water was so muddy that one could not make out whether the tea was strong or weak, and the samovar held only six tumblers of water. But this made it all the pleasanter to take turns in order of seniority to receive one's tumbler from Mary Hendrikovna's plump little hands with their short and not over-clean nails. All the officers appeared to be, and really were, in love with her that evening. Even those playing cards behind the partition soon left their game and came over to the samovar, yielding to the general mood of courting Mary Hendrikovna. She, seeing herself surrounded by such brilliant and polite young men, beamed with satisfaction, try as she might to hide it, and perturbed as she evidently was each time her husband moved in his sleep behind her. There was only one spoon. Sugar was more plentiful than anything else, but it took too long to dissolve, so it was decided that Mary Hendrikovna should stir the sugar for everyone in turn. Rostov received his tumbler and adding some rum to it, asked Mary Hendrikovna to stir it. "'But you take it without sugar?' she said, smiling all the time, as if everything she said and everything the others said was very amusing and had a double meaning. "'It is not the sugar I want, but only that your little hand should stir my tea.' Mary Hendrikovna assented, 
and began looking for the spoon which someone, meanwhile, had pounced on. "'Use your finger, Mary Hendrikovna. It will be still nicer,' said Rostov. "'Too hot,' she replied, blushing with pleasure. Ilyin put a few drops of rum into the bucket of water and brought it to Mary Hendrikovna, asking her to stir it with her finger. "'This is my cup,' said he. "'Only dip your finger in it, and I'll drink it all up.' When they had emptied the samovar, Rostov took a pack of cards and proposed that they should play kings with Mary Hendrikovna. They drew lots to settle who should make up her set. At Rostov's suggestion, it was agreed that whoever became king should have the right to kiss Mary Hendrikovna's hand, and that the booby should go to refill and reheat the samovar for the doctor when the latter awoke. "'Well, but supposing Mary Hendrikovna is king?' asked Ilyin. "'As it is, she is queen, and her word is law.' They had hardly begun to play before the doctor's disheveled head suddenly appeared from behind Mary Hendrikovna. He had been awake for some time, listening to what was being said, and evidently found nothing entertaining or amusing in what was going on. His face was sad and depressed. Without greeting the officers, he scratched himself and asked to be allowed to pass, as they were blocking the way. As soon as he had left the room, all the officers burst into loud laughter, and Mary Hendrikovna blushed till her eyes filled with tears, and thereby became still more attractive to them. Returning from the yard, the doctor told his wife, who had ceased to smile so happily, and looked at him in alarm, awaiting her sentence, that the rain had ceased and they must go to sleep in their covered cart or everything in it would be stolen. "'But I'll send an orderly. Two of them,' said Rostov. "'What an idea, doctor!' "'I'll stand guard on it myself,' said Ilyin. "'No, gentlemen, you have had your sleep, but I have not slept for two nights,' replied the doctor, as he sat down morosely beside his wife, waiting for the game to end. Seeing his gloomy face as he frowned at his wife, the officers grew still merrier, and some of them could not refrain from laughter, for which they hurriedly sought plausible pretexts. When he had gone, taking his wife with him, and had settled down with her in their covered cart, the officers lay down in the tavern, covering themselves with their wet cloaks, but they did not sleep for a long time. Now they exchanged remarks. Recalling the doctor's uneasiness and his wife's delight, now they ran out into the porch and reported what was taking place in the covered trap. Several times Rostov, covering his head, tried to go to sleep, but some remark would arouse him and conversation would be resumed, to the accompaniment of unreasoning, merry, childlike laughter. End of Book Nine, Chapter Thirteen Book Nine, Chapter Fourteen of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Fourteen. It was nearly three o'clock, but no one was yet asleep when the quartermaster appeared with an order to move on to the little town of Ostrovna. Still laughing and talking, the officers began hurriedly getting ready and again boiled some muddy water in the samovar. But Rostov went off to his squadron without waiting for tea. 
Day was breaking, the rain had ceased, and the clouds were dispersing. It felt damp and cold, especially in clothes that were still moist. As they left the tavern in the twilight of the dawn, Rostov and Ilyin both glanced under the wet and glistening leather hood of the doctor's cart, from under the apron of which his feet were sticking out, and in the middle of which his wife's nightcap was visible and her sleepy breathing audible. "'She really is a dear little thing,' said Rostov to Ilyin, who was following him. "'A charming woman,' said Ilyin, with all the gravity of a boy of sixteen. Half an hour later the squadron was lined up on the road. The command was heard to mount, and the soldiers crossed themselves and mounted. Rostov, riding in front, gave the order, Forward! and the hussars, with clanking sabres and subdued talk, the horses' hoofs splashing in the mud, defiled in fours and moved along the broad road planted with birch trees on each side, following the infantry and a battery that had gone on in front. Tattered blue-purple clouds, reddening in the east, were scudding before the wind. It was growing lighter and lighter. That curly grass which always grows by country roadsides became clearly visible, still wet with the night's rain. The drooping branches of the birches, also wet, swayed in the wind and flung down bright drops of water to one side. The soldiers' faces were more and more clearly visible. Rostov, always closely followed by Ilyin, rode along the side of the road between two rows of birch-trees. While campaigning, Rostov allowed himself the indulgence of riding not a regimental but a Cossack horse. A judge of horses and a sportsman, he had lately procured himself a large, fine, meddlesome Donay's horse, dun-colored with light mane and tail, and when he rode it no one could outgallop him. To ride this horse was a pleasure to him, and he thought of the horse, of the morning, of the doctor's wife, but not once of the impending danger. Formerly, when going into action, Rostov had felt afraid. Now he had not the least feeling of fear. He was fearless. Not because he had grown used to being under fire, one cannot grow used to danger, but because he had learned how to manage his thoughts when in danger. He had grown accustomed, when going into action, to think about anything but what would seem most likely to interest him, the impending danger. During the first period of his service, hard as he tried and much as he reproached himself with cowardice, he had not been able to do this, but with time it had come of itself. Now he rode beside Ilyin under the birch-trees, occasionally plucking leaves from a branch that met his hand, sometimes touching his horse's side with his foot, or, without turning round, handing a pipe he had finished to a hussar riding behind him, with as calm and careless an air as though he were merely out for a ride. He glanced with pity at the excited face of Ilyin, who talked much and in great agitation. He knew from experience the tormenting expectation of terror and death the cornet was suffering, and knew that only time could help him. As soon as the sun appeared in a clear strip of sky beneath the clouds, the wind fell, as if it dared not spoil the beauty of the summer morning after the storm. Drops still continued to fall, but vertically now, and all was still. The whole sun appeared on the horizon and disappeared behind a long narrow cloud that hung above it. A few minutes later it reappeared brighter still from behind the top of the cloud, tearing its edge. Everything grew bright and glittered. And with that light, as if in reply to it, came the sound of guns ahead of them. 
Before Rostov had had time to consider and determine the distance of that firing, Count Osterman Tolstoy's adjutant came galloping from Vitebsk with orders to advance at a trot along the road. The squadron overtook and passed the infantry and the battery, which had also quickened their pace, rode down a hill, and passing through an empty and deserted village again ascended. The horses began to lather and the men to flush. "'Halt! Dress your ranks!' the order of the regimental commander was heard ahead. "'Forward by the left! Walk! March!' came the order from in front. And the hussars, passing along the line of troops on the left flank of our position, halted behind our uhlans who were in the front line. To the right stood our infantry in a dense column. They were the reserve. Higher up the hill, on the very horizon, our guns were visible through the wonderfully clear air, brightly illuminated by slanting morning sunbeams. In front, beyond a hollow dale, could be seen the enemy's columns and guns. Our advance line, already in action, could be heard briskly exchanging shots with the enemy in the dale. At these sounds, long unheard, Rostov's spirits rose, as at the strains of the merriest music. Trap, ta ta tap cracked the shots, now together, now several quickly one after another. Again all was silent, and then again it sounded as if someone were walking on detonators and exploding them. The hussars remained in the same place for about an hour. A cannonade began. Count Osterman with his suite rode up behind the squadron, halted, spoke to the commander of the regiment, and rode up the hill to the guns. After Osterman had gone, a command rang out to the Uhlans. "'Form column! Prepare to charge!' The infantry in front of them parted into platoons to allow the cavalry to pass. The Uhlans started, the streamers on their spears fluttering, and trotted downhill toward the French cavalry which was seen below to the left. As soon as the Uhlans descended the hill, the hussars were ordered up the hill to support the battery. As they took the places vacated by the Uhlans, bullets came from the front, whining and whistling, but fell spent without taking effect. The sounds, which he had not heard for so long, had an even more pleasurable and exhilarating effect on Rostov than the previous sounds of firing. Drawing himself up, he viewed the field of battle opening out before him from the hill, and with his whole soul followed the movement of the Uhlans. They swooped down close to the French dragoons. Something confused happened there amid the smoke, and five minutes later our Uhlans were galloping back, not to the place they had occupied, but more to the left, and among the orange-colored Uhlans on chestnut horses and behind them, in a large group, blue French dragoons on gray horses could be seen. End of Book Nine, Chapter Fourteen Book Nine, Chapter Fifteen, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Fifteen. Rostov, with his keen sportsman's eye, was one of the first to catch sight of these blue French dragoons pursuing our Uhlans. Nearer and nearer, in disorderly crowds, came the Uhlans and the French dragoons pursuing them. He could already see how these men, who looked so small at the foot of the hill, jostled and overtook one another, waving their arms and their sabres in the air. Rostov gazed at what was happening before him as at a hunt. 
he felt instinctively that if the hussars struck at the French dragoons now, the latter could not withstand them, but if a charge was to be made, it must be done now, at the very moment, or it would be too late. He looked around. A captain, standing beside him, was gazing like himself with eyes fixed on the cavalry below them. "'Andrew Savitstanich," said Rostov, "'you know, we could crush them.' "'A fine thing, too,' replied the captain. "'And really!' Rostov, without waiting to hear him out, touched his horse, galloped to the front of his squadron, and before he had time to finish giving the word of command, the whole squadron, sharing his feeling, was following him. Rostov himself did not know how or why he did it. He acted as he did when hunting, without reflecting or considering. He saw the dragoons near and that they were galloping in disorder. He knew they could not withstand an attack, knew there was only that moment, and that if he let it slip it would not return. The bullets were whining and whistling so stimulating around him, and his horse was so eager to go that he could not restrain himself. He touched his horse, gave the word of command, and immediately, hearing behind him the tramp of the horses of his deployed squadron, rode at full trot downhill toward the dragoons. Hardly had they reached the bottom of the hill before their pace instinctively changed to a gallop, which grew faster and faster as they drew nearer to our Uhlans and the French dragoons who galloped after them. The dragoons were now close at hand. On seeing the hussars, the foremost began to turn, while those behind began to halt. With the same feeling with which he had galloped across the path of a wolf, Rostov gave rein to his Donet's horse and galloped to intersect the path of the dragoons' disordered lines. One Yulin stopped, another who was on foot flung himself to the ground to avoid being knocked over, and a riderless horse fell in among the hussars. Nearly all the French dragoons were galloping back. Rostov, picking out one on a grey horse, dashed after him. On the way he came upon a bush, his gallant horse cleared it, and almost before he had righted himself in his saddle he saw that he would immediately overtake the enemy he had selected. That Frenchman, by his uniform and officer, was going at a gallop, crouching on his grey horse and urging it on with his sabre. In another moment Rostov's horse dashed its breast against the hindquarters of the officer's horse, almost knocking it over, and at the same instant Rostov, without knowing why, raised his sabre and struck the Frenchman with it. The instant he had done this, all Rostov's animation vanished. The officer fell, not so much from the blow, which had but slightly cut his arm above the elbow, as from the shock to his horse and from fright. Rostov reined in his horse, and his eyes sought his foe to see whom he had vanquished. The French dragoon officer was hopping with one foot on the ground, the other being caught in the stirrup. His eyes, screwed up with fear, as if he every moment expected another blow, gazed up at Rostov with shrinking terror. His pale and mud-stained face, fair and young with a dimple in the chin and light blue eyes, was not an enemy's face at all suited to a battlefield, but a most ordinary homelike face. Before Rostov had decided what to do with him, the officer cried, I surrender!" He hurriedly but vainly tried to get his foot out of the stirrup and did not remove his frightened blue eyes from Rostov's face. Some hussars who galloped up disengaged his foot and helped him into the saddle. On all sides the hussars were busy with the dragoons. One was wounded, but though his face was bleeding he would not give up his horse. 
another was perched up behind an hussar with his arms round him. A third was being helped by an hussar to mount his horse. In front the French infantry were firing as they ran. The hussars galloped hastily back with their prisoners. Rostov galloped back with the rest, aware of an unpleasant feeling of depression in his heart. Something vague and confused, which he could not at all account for, had come over him with the capture of that officer and the blow he had dealt him. Count Osterman Tolstoy met the returning hussars, sent for Rostov, thanked him, and said he would report his gallant deed to the Emperor and would recommend him for a St. George's Cross. When sent for by Count Osterman, Rostov, remembering that he had charged without orders, felt sure his commander was sending for him to punish him for breach of discipline. Osterman's flattering words and promise of a reward should therefore have struck him all the more pleasantly, but he still felt that same vaguely disagreeable feeling of moral nausea. "'But what on earth is worrying me?' he asked himself as he rode back from the general. "'Ilion? No, he is safe. Have I disgraced myself in any way? No, that's not it.' Something else, resembling remorse, tormented him. Yes, oh yes, that French officer with the dimple. And I remember how my arm paused when I raised it. Rostov saw the prisoners being led away, and galloped after them to have a look at his Frenchman with the dimple on his chin. He was sitting in his foreign uniform on an hussar pack-horse and looked anxiously about him. The sword cut on his arm could scarcely be called a wound. He glanced at Rostov with a feigned smile and waved his hand in greeting. Rostov still had the same indefinite feeling as of shame. All that day and the next his friends and comrades noticed that Rostov, without being dull or angry, was silent, thoughtful, and preoccupied. He drank reluctantly, tried to remain alone, and kept turning something over in his mind. Rostov was always thinking about that brilliant exploit of his, which, to his amazement, had gained him the St. George's Cross, and even given him a reputation for bravery, and there was something he could not at all understand. "'So others are even more afraid than I am,' he thought. "'So that's all there is in what is called heroism. And did I do it for my country's sake? And how was he to blame, with his dimple and blue eyes?' and how frightened he was. He thought that I should kill him. Why should I kill him? My hand trembled. And they have given me a St. George's cross. I can't make it out at all." But while Nicholas was considering these questions, and still could reach no clear solution of what puzzled him so, the wheel of fortune in the service, as often happens, turned in his favor. After the affair at Ostrovna, he was brought into notice, received command of a hussar battalion, and when a brave officer was needed, he was chosen. End of Book Nine, Chapter Fifteen. Book Nine, Chapter Sixteen, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Sixteen. On receiving news of Natasha's illness, the Countess, though not quite well yet and still weak, went to Moscow with Petya and the rest of the household, 
and the whole family moved from Maria Dmitrievna's house to their own and settled down in town. Natasha's illness was so serious that, fortunately for her and for her parents, the consideration of all that had caused the illness, her conduct and the breaking off of her engagement, receded into the background. She was so ill that it was impossible for them to consider in how far she was to blame for what had happened. She could not eat or sleep, grew visibly thinner, coughed, and as the doctors made them feel, was in danger. They could not think of anything but how to help her. Doctors came to see her singly and in consultation, talked much in French, German, and Latin, blamed one another, and prescribed a great variety of medicines for all the diseases known to them. But the simple idea never occurred to any of them that they could not know the disease Natasha was suffering from, as no disease suffered by a live man can be known, for every living person has his own peculiarities, and always has his own peculiar, personal, novel, complicated disease, unknown to medicine. Not a disease of the lungs, liver, skin, heart, nerves, and so on mentioned in medical books, but a disease consisting of one of the innumerable combinations of the maladies of those organs. This simple thought could not occur to the doctors, as it cannot occur to a wizard that he is unable to work his charms, because the business of their lives was to cure, and they received money for it and had spent the best years of their lives on that business. But, above all, that thought was kept out of their minds by the fact that they saw they were really useful, as in fact they were to the whole Rostov family. Their usefulness did not depend on making the patient swallow substances, for the most part harmful, the harm was scarcely perceptible, as they were given in small doses, but they were useful, necessary, and indispensable, because they satisfied a mental need of the invalid and of those who loved her, and that is why there are, and always will be, pseudo-healers, wise women, homeopaths, and allopaths. They satisfied that eternal human need for hope of relief, for sympathy, and that something should be done, which is felt by those who are suffering. They satisfied the need seen in its most elementary form in a child, when it wants to have a place rubbed that has been hurt. A child knocks itself and runs at once to the arms of its mother or nurse to have the aching spot rubbed or kissed, and it feels better when this is done. The child cannot believe that the strongest and wisest of its people have no remedy for its pain, and the hope of relief and the expression of its mother's sympathy while she rubs the bump comforts it. The doctors were of use to Natasha because they kissed and rubbed her bump, assuring her that it would soon pass, if only the coachman went to the chemist's in the Arbat and got a powder and some pills in a pretty box for a rouble and seventy kopecks, and if she took those powders in boiled water at intervals of precisely two hours, neither more nor less. What would Sonia and the Count and Countess have done? How would they have looked if nothing had been done? if there had not been those pills to give by the clock, the warm drinks, the chicken cutlets, and all the other details of life ordered by the doctors, the carrying out of which supplied an occupation and consolation to the family circle. How would the Count have borne his dearly loved daughter's illness, had he not known that it was costing him a thousand roubles, and that he would not grudge thousands more to benefit her, or had he not known that if her illness continued, he would not grudge yet other thousands, and would take her abroad for consultations there, 
and had he not been able to explain the details of how Metivier and Feller had not understood the symptoms, but Fries had, and Mudrov had diagnosed them even better. What would the Countess have done had she not been able sometimes to scold the invalid for not strictly obeying the doctor's orders? "'You'll never get well like that,' she would say, forgetting her grief and her vexation, "'if you won't obey the doctor and take your medicine at the right time.' You mustn't trifle with it, you know, or it may turn to pneumonia," she would go on, deriving much comfort from the utterance of that foreign word, incomprehensible to others as well as to herself. What would Sonia have done without the glad consciousness that she had not undressed during the first three nights in order to be ready to carry out all the doctor's injunctions with precision? and that she still kept awake at night so as not to miss the proper time when the slightly harmful pills in the little gilt box had to be administered. Even to Natasha herself it was pleasant to see that so many sacrifices were being made for her sake, and to know that she had to take medicine at certain hours, though she declared that no medicine would cure her and that it was all nonsense and it was even pleasant to be able to show, by disregarding the orders, that she did not believe in medical treatment and did not value her life. The doctor came every day, felt her pulse, looked at her tongue, and regardless of her grief-stricken face, joked with her. But when he had gone into another room, to which the countess hurriedly followed him, he assumed a grave air, and thoughtfully shaking his head, said that, though there was danger, he had hopes of the effect of this last medicine, and one must wait and see, that the malady was chiefly mental, but— And the countess, trying to conceal the action from herself and from him, slipped a gold coin into his hand and was always returned to the patient with a more tranquil mind. The symptoms of Natasha's illness were that she ate little, slept little, coughed, and was always low-spirited. The doctor said that she could not get on without medical treatment, so they kept her in the stifling atmosphere of the town, and the Rostovs did not move to the country that summer of 1812. In spite of the many pills she swallowed, and the drops and powders out of the little bottles and boxes, of which Madame Chaus, who was fond of such things, made a large collection, and in spite of being deprived of the country life to which she was accustomed, youth prevailed. Natasha's grief began to be overlaid by the impressions of daily life. It ceased to press so painfully on her heart. It gradually faded into the past, and she began to recover physically. End of Book Nine, Chapter Sixteen Book Nine, Chapter Seventeen of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Seventeen. Natasha was calmer, but no happier. She not merely avoided all external forms of pleasure, balls, promenades, concerts, and theaters, but she never laughed without a sound of tears in her laughter. She could not sing. As soon as she began to laugh, or tried to sing by herself, tears choked her tears of remorse, tears at the recollection of those pure times which could never return, tears of vexation that she should so uselessly have ruined her young life which might have been so happy. Laughter and singing in particular seemed to her like a blasphemy in face of her sorrow. 
without any need of self-restraint, no wish to coquette ever entered her head. She said and felt at that time that no man was more to her than Nastasya Ivanovna, the buffoon. Something stood sentinel within her, and forbade her every joy. Besides, she had lost all the old interest of her carefree girlish life that had been so full of hope. The previous autumn, the hunting, uncle and the Christmas holidays spent with Nicholas at Otradno were what she recalled oftenest and most painfully. What would she not have given to bring back even a single day of that time? But it was gone forever. Her presentiment at the time had not deceived her, that that state of freedom and readiness for any enjoyment would not return again. Yet it was necessary to live on. It comforted her to reflect that she was not better as she had formerly imagined, but worse, much worse, than anybody else in the world. But this was not enough. She knew that, and asked herself, what next? But there was nothing to come. There was no joy in life, yet life was passing. Natasha apparently tried not to be a burden or a hindrance to anyone, but wanted nothing for herself. She kept away from everyone in the house and felt at ease only with her brother Petya. She liked to be with him better than with the others, and when alone with him she sometimes laughed. She hardly ever left the house, and of those who came to see them was glad to see only one person, Pierre. It would have been impossible to treat her with more delicacy, greater care, and at the same time more seriously than did Count Bezukhov. Natasha unconsciously felt this delicacy, and so found great pleasure in his society. But she was not even grateful to him for it. Nothing good on Pierre's part seemed to her to be an effort. It seemed so natural for him to be kind to everyone that there was no merit in his kindness. Sometimes Natasha noticed embarrassment and awkwardness on his part in her presence, especially when he wanted to do something to please her, or feared that something they spoke of would awaken memories distressing to her. She noticed this and attributed it to his general kindness and shyness, which she imagined must be the same toward everyone as it was to her. After those involuntary words, that if he were free he would have asked on his knees for her hand and her love, uttered at a moment when she was so strongly agitated, Pierre never spoke to Natasha of his feelings and it seemed plain to her that those words, which had then so comforted her, were spoken as all sorts of meaningless words are spoken to comfort a crying child. It was not because Pierre was a married man, but because Natasha felt very strongly with him, that moral barrier, the absence of which she had experienced with Karagin, that it never entered her head that the relations between him and herself could leave to love on her part, still less on his, or even to the kind of tender, self-conscious, romantic friendship between a man and a woman of which she had known several instances. Before the end of the fast of St. Peter, Agrafena Ivanovna Belova, a country neighbor of the Rostovs, came to Moscow to pay her devotions at the shrines of the Moscow saints. She suggested that Natasha should fast and prepare for Holy Communion, and Natasha gladly welcomed the idea. Despite the doctor's orders that she should not go out early in the morning, Natasha insisted on fasting and preparing for the sacrament, not as they generally prepared for it in the Rostov family, by attending three services in their own house, but as Agrafena Ivanovna did, by going to church every day for a week and not once missing vespers, matins, or mass. 
the Countess was pleased with Natasha's zeal. After the poor results of the medical treatment, in the depths of her heart she hoped that prayer might help her daughter more than medicines, and though not without fear and concealing it from the doctor, she agreed to Natasha's wish and entrusted her to Belova. Agrafina Ivanovna used to come to wake Natasha at three in the morning, but generally found her already awake. She was afraid of being late for matins. Hastily washing and meekly putting on her shabbiest dress and an old mantilla, Natasha, shivering in the fresh air, went out into the deserted streets lit by the clear light of dawn. By Agrafina Ivanovna's advice, Natasha prepared herself not in their own parish, but at a church where, according to the devout Agrafina Ivanovna, the priest was a man of very severe and lofty life. There were never many people in the church. Natasha always stood beside Belova in the customary place before an icon of the Blessed Virgin, led into the screen before the choir on the left side, and a feeling, new to her, of humility before something great and incomprehensible seized her when at that unusual morning hour, gazing at the dark face of the Virgin illuminated by the candles burning before it and by the morning light falling from the window, she listened to the words of the service which she tried to follow with understanding. When she understood them, her personal feeling became interwoven in the prayers with shades of its own. When she did not understand, it was sweeter still to think that the wish to understand everything is pride, that it is impossible to understand all, that it is only necessary to believe and to commit oneself to God, whom she felt guiding her soul at those moments. She crossed herself, bowed low, and when she did not understand, in horror at her own vileness, simply asked God to forgive her everything, everything, to have mercy upon her. The prayers to which she surrendered herself most of all were those of repentance. On her way home at an early hour, when she met no one but bricklayers going to work or men sweeping the street, and everybody within the houses was still asleep, Natasha experienced a feeling new to her, a sense of the possibility of correcting her faults, the possibility of a new, clean life and of happiness. During the whole week she spent in this way, that feeling grew every day and the happiness of taking communion, or communing as Agrafina Ivanovna, joyously playing with the word, called it, seemed to Natasha so great that she felt she should never live till that blessed Sunday. But the happy day came, and on that memorable Sunday, when, dressed in white muslin, she returned home after communion, for the first time for many months she felt calm and not oppressed by the thought of the life that lay before her. The doctor who came to see her that day ordered her to continue the powders he had prescribed a fortnight previously. "'She must certainly go on taking them morning and evening,' said he, evidently sincerely satisfied with his success. "'Only please be particular about it.' "'Be quite easy,' he continued playfully, as he adroitly took the gold coin in his palm. "'She will soon be singing and frolicking about.' The last medicine has done her a very great deal of good. She has freshened up very much." The Countess, with a cheerful expression on her face, looked down at her nails and spat a little for luck as she returned to the drawing-room. End of Book Nine, Chapter Seventeen
Book Nine, Chapter Eighteen, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Eighteen. At the beginning of July, more and more disquieting reports about the war began to spread in Moscow. People spoke of an appeal by the emperor to the people, and of his coming himself from the army to Moscow and as up to the 11th of July no manifesto or appeal had been received, exaggerated reports became current about them and about the position of Russia. It was said that the Emperor was leaving the army because it was in danger, it was said that Smolensk had surrendered, that Napoleon had an army of a million, and only a miracle could save Russia. On the 11th of July, which was Saturday, the manifesto was received but was not yet in print, and Pierre, who was at the Rostovs, promised to come to dinner next day, Sunday, and bring a copy of the manifesto and appeal, which he would obtain from Count Rostopchin. That Sunday the Rostovs went to Mass at the Razumovsky's private chapel, as usual. It was a hot July day. Even at ten o'clock, when the Rostovs got out of their carriage at the chapel, the sultry air, the shouts of hawkers, the light and gay summer clothes of the crowd, the dusty leaves of the trees on the boulevard, the sounds of the band and the white trousers of a battalion marching to parade, the rattling of wheels on the cobblestones, and the brilliant hot sunshine were all full of that summer languor, that content and discontent with the present, which is most strongly felt on a bright hot day in town. All the Moscow notabilities, all the Rostovs' acquaintances were at the Razumovsky's chapel, for as if expecting something to happen, Many wealthy families, who usually left town for their country estates, had not gone away that summer. As Natasha, at her mother's side, passed through the crowd behind a liveried footman who cleared the way for them, she heard a young man speaking about her in too loud a whisper. "'That's Rostova, the one who—she's much thinner, but all the same, she's pretty.' She heard, or thought she heard, the names of Karagin and Bolkonsky but she was always imagining that. It always seemed to her that everyone who looked at her was thinking only of what had happened to her. With a sinking heart, wretched as she always was now when she found herself in a crowd, Natasha in her lilac silk dress trimmed with black lace walked, as women can walk, with the more repose and stateliness the greater the pain and shame in her soul. She knew for certain that she was pretty, but this no longer gave her satisfaction as it used to. On the contrary, it tormented her more than anything else of late, and particularly so on this bright, hot summer day in town. "'It's Sunday again. Another week passed,' she thought, recalling that she had been here the Sunday before. "'And always the same life that is no life, and the same surroundings in which it used to be so easy to live. I'm pretty, I'm young, and I know that I am good. I used to be bad.' but now I know I am good," she thought. But yet my best years are slipping by and are no good to anyone. She stood by her mother's side and exchanged nods with acquaintances near her. From habit she scrutinized the lady's dresses, condemned the bearing of a lady standing close by who was not crossing herself properly but in a cramped manner, and again she thought with vexation that she was herself being judged and was judging others, 
and suddenly, at the sound of the service, she felt horrified at her own vileness, horrified that the former purity of her soul was again lost to her. A comely, fresh-looking old man was conducting the service, with that mild solemnity which was so elevating and soothing an effect on the souls of the worshippers. The gates of the sanctuary screen were closed, the curtain was slowly drawn, and from behind it a soft, mysterious voice pronounced some words. Tears, the cause of which she herself did not understand, made Natasha's breast heave, and a joyous but oppressive feeling agitated her. "'Teach me what I should do, how to live my life, how I may grow good forever, forever,' she pleaded. The deacon came out onto the raised space before the altar-screen, and, holding his thumb extended, drew his long hair from under his dalmatic, and making the sign of the cross on his breast, began in a loud and solemn voice to recite the words of the prayer. "'In peace let us pray unto the Lord.' "'As one community, without distinction of class, without enmity, united by brotherly love, let us pray,' thought Natasha. "'For the peace that is from above, and for the salvation of our souls.' for the world of angels and all the spirits who dwell above us," prayed Natasha. When they prayed for the warriors, she thought of her brother and Denisov. When they prayed for all travelling by land and sea, she remembered Prince Andrew, prayed for him, and asked God to forgive her all the wrongs she had done him. When they prayed for those who love us, she prayed for the members of her own family, her father and mother and Sonia, realizing for the first time how wrongly she had acted toward them, and feeling all the strength of her love for them. When they prayed for those who hate us, she tried to think of her enemies and people who hated her, in order to pray for them. She included among her enemies the creditors and all who had business dealings with her father, and always, at the thought of enemies and those who hated her, she remembered Anatole, who had done her so much harm and though he did not hate her, she gladly prayed for him as for an enemy. Only at prayer did she feel able to think clearly and calmly of Prince Andrew and Anatole, as men for whom her feelings were as nothing compared with her awe and devotion to God. When they prayed for the imperial family and the synod, she bowed very low and made the sign of the cross, saying to herself that, even if she did not understand, still she could not doubt and at any rate loved the governing synod and prayed for it. When he had finished the litany the deacon crossed the stole over his breast and said, "'Let us commit ourselves and our whole lives to Christ the Lord.' "'Commit ourselves to God,' Natasha inwardly repeated. "'Lord God, I submit myself to Thy will,' she thought. "'I want nothing, wish for nothing. Tell me what to do and how to use my will. Take me.' Take me," prayed Natasha, with impatient emotion in her heart, not crossing herself, but letting her slender arms hang down, as if expecting some invisible power at any moment to take her and deliver her from herself, from her regrets, desires, remorse, hopes, and sins. The Countess looked round several times at her daughter's softened face and shining eyes and prayed God to help her. Unexpectedly, in the middle of the service, and not in the usual order Natasha knew so well, the deacon brought out a small stool, the one he knelt on when praying on Trinity Sunday, and placed it before the doors of the sanctuary screen. 
The priest came out with his purple velvet beretta on his head, adjusted his hair, and knelt down with an effort. Everybody followed his example, and they looked at one another in surprise. Then came the prayer just received from the Synod, a prayer for the deliverance of Russia from hostile invasion. "'Lord God of might, God of our salvation,' began the priest in that voice, clear, not grandiloquent, but mild, in which only the Slav clergy read and which acts so irresistibly on a Russian heart. "'Lord God of might, God of our salvation, look this day in mercy and blessing on thy humble people, and graciously hear us, spare us, and have mercy upon us.' This foe confounding thy land, desiring to lay waste the whole world, rises against us. These lawless men are gathered together to overthrow thy kingdom, to destroy thy dear Jerusalem, thy beloved Russia, to defile thy temples, to overthrow thine altars, and to desecrate our holy shrines. How long, O Lord, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they wield unlawful power? Lord God, hear us when we pray to Thee. Strengthen with Thy might our most gracious Sovereign Lord, the Emperor Alexander Pavlovich. Be mindful of his uprightness and meekness. Reward him according to his righteousness, and let it preserve us, Thy chosen Israel. Bless his counsels, his undertakings, and his work. Strengthen his kingdom by thine almighty hand, and give him victory over his enemy, even as thou gavest Moses the victory over Amalek, Gideon over Midian, and David over Goliath. Preserve his army, put a bow of brass in the hands of those who have armed themselves in thy name, and gird their loins with strength for the fight. Take up the spear and shield, and arise to help us. Confound and put to shame those who have devised evil against us. May they be before the faces of thy faithful warriors as dust before the wind, and may thy mighty angel confound them and put them to flight. May they be ensnared when they know it not, and may the plots they have laid in secret be turned against them. Let them fall before thy servants' feet and be laid low by our hosts. Lord, Thou art able to save both great and small. Thou art God, and man cannot prevail against Thee. God of our fathers, remember Thy bounteous mercy and loving-kindness which are from of old. Turn not Thy face from us, but be gracious to our unworthiness, and in Thy great goodness and Thy many mercies regard not our transgressions and iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, and renew a right spirit within us. Strengthen us all in thy faith, fortify our hope, inspire us with true love for one another. Arm us with unity of spirit in the righteous defense of the heritage thou gavest to us and to our fathers. And let not the scepter of the wicked be exalted against the destiny of those thou hast sanctified. O Lord, our God, in whom we believe and in whom we put our trust, let us not be confounded in our hope of thy mercy, and give us a token of thy blessing, that those who hate us and our orthodox faith may see it and be put to shame and perish, and may all the nations know that thou art the Lord and we are thy people. Show thy mercy upon us this day, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. 
make the hearts of thy servants to rejoice in thy mercy. Smite down our enemies, and destroy them swiftly beneath the feet of thy faithful servants. For thou art the defence, the succour, and the victory of them that put their trust in thee, and to thee be all glory, to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, now and for ever, world without end. Amen. In Natasha's receptive condition of soul, this prayer affected her strongly. She listened to every word about the victory of Moses over Amalek, of Gideon over Midian, and of David over Goliath, and about the destruction of thy Jerusalem. And she prayed to God with the tenderness and emotion with which her heart was overflowing, but without fully understanding what she was asking of God in that prayer. She shared with all her heart in the prayer for the spirit of righteousness, for the strengthening of the heart by faith and hope, and its animation by love. But she could not pray that her enemies might be trampled underfoot, when, but a few minutes before, she had been wishing she had more of them that she might pray for them. But neither could she doubt the righteousness of the prayer that was being read on bended knees. She felt in her heart a devout and tremulous awe at the thought of the punishment that overtakes men for their sins, and especially of her own sins, and she prayed to God to forgive them all, and her too, and to give them all, and her too, peace and happiness. And it seemed to her that God heard her prayer. End of Book Nine, Chapter Eighteen Book Nine, Chapter Nineteen of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Nineteen From the day when Pierre, after leaving the Rostovs with Natasha's grateful look fresh in his mind, had gazed at the comet that seemed to be fixed in the sky and felt that something new was appearing on his own horizon, from that day the problem of the vanity and uselessness of all earthly things, that had incessantly tormented him, no longer presented itself. That terrible question, why, wherefore, which had come to him amid every occupation, was now replaced, not by another question or by a reply to the former question, but by her image. When he listened to or himself took part in trivial conversations, when he read or heard of human baseness or folly, he was not horrified as formerly, and did not ask himself why men struggled so about these things when all is so transient and incomprehensible, but he remembered her as he had last seen her, and all his doubts vanished not because she had answered the questions that had haunted him, but because his conception of her transferred him instantly to another, a brighter realm of spiritual activity, in which no one could be justified or guilty. A realm of beauty and love which it was worth living for. Whatever worldly baseness presented itself to him, he said to himself, "'Well, supposing N.N. has swindled the country and the Tsar, and the country and the Tsar confer honours upon him. What does that matter? She smiled at me yesterday, and asked me to come again, and I love her, and no one will ever know it." And his soul felt calm and peaceful. Pierre still went into society, 
drank as much, and led the same idle and dissipated life, because besides the hours he spent at the Rostovs there were other hours he had to spend somehow, and the habits and acquaintances he had made in Moscow formed a current that bore him along irresistibly. But latterly, when more and more disquieting reports came from the seat of war, and Natasha's health began to improve and she no longer aroused in him the former feeling of careful pity, an ever-increasing restlessness, which he could not explain, took possession of him. He felt that the condition he was in could not continue long, that a catastrophe was coming which would change his whole life, and he impatiently sought everywhere for signs of that approaching catastrophe. One of his brother Masons had revealed to Pierre the following prophecy concerning Napoleon, drawn from the revelation of St. John. In chapter 13, verse 18 of the Apocalypse, it is said, Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. And in the fifth verse of the same chapter, and there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months." The French alphabet, written out with the same numerical values as the Hebrew, in which the first nine letters denote units and the others tens, will have the following significance. A1, B2, C3, D4, E5, F6, G7, H8, I9, K10, L20, M30, N40, O50, P60, Q70, R80, S90, T100, U110, V120, W130, X140, Y150, Z160. Writing the words L'Empereur Napoleon in numbers, it appears that the sum of them is 666 and that Napoleon was therefore the beast foretold in the Apocalypse. Moreover, by applying the same system to the words Quarandu, forty-two, which was the term allowed to the beast that spoke great things and blasphemies, the same number, 666, was obtained. From which it followed that the limit fixed for Napoleon's power had come in the year 1812 when the French Emperor was forty-two. This prophecy pleased Pierre very much and he often asked himself what would put an end to the power of the beast, that is, of Napoleon, and tried by the same system of using letters as numbers and adding them up, to find an answer to the question that engrossed him. He wrote the words, L'Empereur Alexandre, La Nation Russe, and added up their numbers, but the sums were either more or less than 666. Once, when making such calculations, he wrote down his own name in French, Count Pierre Bessouhoff, but the sum of the numbers did not come right. Then he changed the spelling, substituting a Z for the S and adding DE and the article LE, still without obtaining the desired result. Then it occurred to him, if the answer to the question were contained in his name, his nationality would also be given in the answer. So he wrote LE RUSSE BESUHOFF and adding up the numbers got 671. This was only five too much and five was represented by E, the very letter elided from the article lay before the word emperor. By omitting the E, though incorrectly, Pierre got the answer he sought. Le Russe Besuhoff made 666. This discovery excited him. 
How or by what means he was connected with the great event foretold in the Apocalypse he did not know, but he did not doubt that connection for a moment. His love for Natasha, Antichrist, Napoleon, the Invasion, the Comet, 666, L'Empereur Napoleon and Le Russe Besuhoff, all this had to mature and culminate, to lift him out of that spell-bound, petty sphere of Moscow habits in which he felt himself held captive, and lead him to a great achievement and great happiness. On the eve of the Sunday, when the special prayer was read, Pierre had promised the Rostovs to bring them from Count Rostopchin, whom he knew well, both the appeal to the people and the news from the army. In the morning, when he went to call at Rostopchin's, he met there a courier fresh from the army, an acquaintance of his own, who often danced at Moscow balls. "'Do, please, for heaven's sake, relieve me of something,' said the courier. "'I have a sackful of letters to parents.' Among these letters was one from Nicholas Rostov to his father. Pierre took that letter, and Rostopchin also gave him the Emperor's appeal to Moscow, which had just been printed, the last army orders, and his own most recent bulletin. Glancing through the army orders, Pierre found in one of them, in the lists of killed, wounded, and rewarded, the name of Nicholas Rostov, awarded a St. George's Cross of the Fourth Class, for courage shown in the Ostrovna affair and in the same order the name of Prince Andrew Bolkonsky, appointed to the command of a regiment of chasseurs. Though he did not want to remind the Rostovs of Bolkonsky, Pierre could not refrain from making them happy by the news of their sons having received a decoration, so he sent that printed army order and Nicholas' letter to the Rostovs, keeping the appeal, the bulletin, and the other orders to take with him when he went to dinner. His conversation with Count Rostopchin and the latter's tone of anxious hurry, the meeting with the courier who talked casually of how badly things were going in the army, the rumors of the discovery of spies in Moscow and of a leaflet in circulation stating that Napoleon promised to be in both the Russian capitals by the autumn, and the talk of the Emperor's being expected to arrive next day, all aroused with fresh force that feeling of agitation and expectation in Pierre which he had been conscious of ever since the appearance of the comet, and especially since the beginning of the war. He had long been thinking of entering the army, and would have done so had he not been hindered, first by his membership of the Society of Freemasons, to which he was bound by oath and which preached perpetual peace and the abolition of war, and secondly by the fact that, when he saw the great mass of Muscovites who had donned uniform and were talking patriotism, he somehow felt ashamed to take the step. But the chief reason for not carrying out his intention to enter the army lay in the vague idea that he was Le Russe Besuhoff, who had the number of the beast 666. That his part in the great affair of setting a limit to the power of the beast that spoke great and blasphemous things had been predestined from eternity, and that, therefore, he ought not to undertake anything, but wait for what was bound to come to pass. End of Book Nine, Chapter Nineteen. Book Nine, Chapter Twenty, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Twenty. A few intimate friends were dining with the Rostovs that day, as usual on Sundays. 
Pierre came early so as to find them alone. He had grown so stout this year that he would have been abnormal had he not been so tall, so broad of limb and so strong that he carried his bulk with evident ease. He went up the stairs, puffing and muttering something. His coachman did not even ask whether he was to wait. He knew that when his master was at the Rostovs he stayed till midnight. The Rostovs' footman rushed eagerly forward to help him off with his cloak and take his hat and stick. Pierre, from club habit, always left both hat and stick in the anteroom. The first person he saw in the house was Natasha. Even before he saw her, while taking off his cloak, he heard her. She was practicing solfa exercises in the music-room. He knew that she had not sung since her illness, and so the sound of her voice surprised and delighted him. He opened the door softly and saw her, in the lilac dress she had worn at church, walking about the room singing. She had her back to him when he opened the door, but when, turning quickly, she saw his broad, surprised face, she blushed and came rapidly up to him. "'I want to try to sing again,' she said, adding as if by way of excuse. "'It is at least something to do.' "'That's capital.' "'How glad I am you've come. I am so happy today,' she said, with the old animation Pierre had not seen in her for a long time. "'You know Nicholas has received a St. George's cross? I am so proud of him.' "'Oh, yes, I said that announcement. But I don't want to interrupt you,' he added, and was about to go to the drawing-room. Natasha stopped him. "'Count, is it wrong of me to sing?' she said, blushing, and fixing her eyes inquiringly on him. "'No. Why should it be? On the contrary. But why do you ask me?' I don't know myself," Natasha answered quickly. But I should not like to do anything you disapprove of. I believe in you completely. You don't know how important you are to me, how much you've done for me." She spoke rapidly and did not notice how Pierre flushed at her words. I saw in that same army order that he—Bolkonsky—she whispered the name hastily—is in Russia and in the army again. What do you think? She was speaking hurriedly, evidently afraid her strength might fail her. "'Will he ever forgive me? Will he not always have a bitter feeling toward me? What do you think? What do you think?' "'I think,' Pierre replied, "'that he has nothing to forgive. If I were in his place—' By association of ideas, Pierre was at once carried back to the day, when, trying to comfort her, he had said that if he were not himself but the best man in the world and free, he would ask on his knees for her hand. And the same feeling of pity, tenderness, and love took possession of him, and the same words rose to his lips. But she did not give him time to say them. "'Yes, you, you,' she said, uttering the word you rapturously. "'That's a different thing. I know no one kinder, more generous, or better than you. Nobody could be.' Had you not been there then, and now, too, I don't know what would have become of me, because—' Tears suddenly rose in her eyes. She turned away, lifted her music before her eyes, began singing again, and again began walking up and down the room. Just then Petya came running in from the drawing-room. Petya was now a handsome, rosy lad of fifteen, with full red lips and resembled Natasha. He was preparing to enter the university, but he and his friend Oblensky had lately, in secret, agreed to join the hussars. 
Petya had come rushing out to talk to his namesake about this affair. He had asked Pierre to find out whether he would be accepted in the Hussars. Pierre walked up and down the drawing-room, not listening to what Petya was saying. Petya pulled him by the arm to attract his attention. "'Well, what about my plan? Peter Kurilich, for heaven's sake, you are my only hope,' said Petya. "'Oh, yes, your plan. To join the Hussars? I'll mention it. I'll bring it all up today. "'Well, mon cher, have you got the manifesto?' asked the old Count. "'The Countess has been to Mass at the Razumovskys and heard the new prayer. She says it's very fine.' "'Yes, I've got it,' said Pierre. "'The Emperor is to be here tomorrow. There's to be an extraordinary meeting of the nobility, and they are talking of a levy of ten men per thousand. Oh, yes, let me congratulate you.' "'Yes, yes, thank God. Well, and what news from the army?' "'We are again retreating. They say we're already near Smolensk,' replied Pierre. "'Oh, Lord, oh, Lord!' exclaimed the Count. "'Where is the manifesto?' "'The Emperor's appeal? Oh, yes!' Pierre began feeling in his pockets for the papers, but could not find them. Still slapping his pockets, he kissed the hand of the Countess who entered the room, and glanced uneasily around evidently expecting Natasha, who had left off singing, but had not yet come into the drawing-room. "'On my word, I don't know what I've done with it,' he said. "'There he is, always losing everything,' remarked the Countess. Natasha entered with a softened and agitated expression of face and sat down looking silently at Pierre. As soon as she entered, Pierre's features, which had been gloomy, suddenly lighted up, and while still searching for the papers he glanced at her several times. "'No, really. I'll drive home. I must have left them there. I'll certainly. But you'll be late for dinner. Oh, and my coachman has gone.' But Sonia, who had gone to look for the papers in the anteroom, had found them in Pierre's hat, where he had carefully tucked them under the lining. Pierre was about to begin reading. "'No, after dinner.' said the old Count, evidently expecting much enjoyment from that reading. At dinner, at which Champagne was drunk to the health of the new Chevalier of St. George, Shinshin told them the town news, of the illness of the old Georgian princess, of Mativier's disappearance from Moscow, and of how some German fellow had been brought to Rostopchin and accused of being a French spire, so Count Rostopchin had told the story, and how Rostopchin let him go and assured the people that he was not a spire at all, but only an old German ruin. "'People are being arrested,' said the Count. "'I've told the Countess she should not speak French so much. It's not the time for it now.' "'And have you heard?' Shinshin asked. "'Prince Golitsyn has engaged a master to teach him Russian. It is becoming dangerous to speak French in the streets.' "'And how about you, Count Peter Kurilich? If they call up the militia, you too will have to mount a horse.' remarked the old Count, addressing Pierre. Pierre had been silent and preoccupied all through dinner, seeming not to grasp what was said. He looked at the Count. "'Oh, yes, the war,' he said. "'No, what sort of warrior should I make? And yet everything is so strange, so strange. I can't make it out. I don't know. I am very far from having military tastes, but in these times no one can answer for himself.' After dinner, the Count settled himself comfortably in an easy-chair, and with a serious face asked Sonia, 
who was considered an excellent reader, to read the appeal. To Moscow, our ancient capital. The enemy has entered the borders of Russia with immense forces. He comes to despoil our beloved country. Sonia read painstakingly in her high-pitched voice. The Count listened with closed eyes, heaving abrupt sighs at certain passages. Natasha sat erect, gazing with a searching look now at her father and now at Pierre. Pierre felt her eyes on him and tried not to look round. The Countess shook her head disapprovingly and angrily at every solemn expression in the manifesto. In all these words she saw only that the danger threatening her son would not soon be over. Shinshin, with a sarcastic smile on his lips, was evidently preparing to make fun of anything that gave him the opportunity. Sonia's reading, any remark of the Count's, or even the manifesto itself should no better pretext present itself. After reading about the dangers that threaten Russia, the hopes the Emperor placed on Moscow and especially on its illustrious nobility, Sonia, with a quiver in her voice, due chiefly to the attention that was being paid to her, read the last words. We ourselves will not delay to appear among our people in that capital and in other parts of our realm for consultation, and for the direction of all our levies, both those now barring the enemy's path and those freshly formed to defeat him wherever he may appear. May the ruin he hopes to bring upon us recoil on his own head, and may Europe, delivered from bondage, glorify the name of Russia. Yes, that's it cried the Count, opening his moist eyes and sniffing repeatedly, as if a strong vinaigrette had been held to his nose. And he added, "'Let the Emperor but say the word, and we'll sacrifice everything, and begrudge nothing.'" Before Shinshin had time to utter the joke he was ready to make on the Count's patriotism, Natasha jumped up from her place and ran to her father. "'What a darling our papa is!' she cried, kissing him and she again looked at Pierre with the unconscious coquetry that had returned to her with her better spirits. "'There! Here's a patriot for you!' said Shinshin. "'Not a patriot at all, but simply—' Natasha replied in an injured tone. "'Everything seems funny to you, but this isn't at all a joke.' "'A joke, indeed!' put in the Count. "'Let him but say the word, and we'll all go. We're not Germans.' "'But did you notice it says, for consultation?' said Pierre. "'Never mind what it's for.' At this moment Petya, to whom nobody was paying any attention, came up to his father with a very flushed face, and said in his breaking voice that was now deep and now shrill, "'Well, Papa, I tell you definitely, and Mama too, it's as you please, but I say definitely that you must let me enter the army because I can't. That's all." The Countess, in dismay, looked up to heaven, clasped her hands, and turned angrily to her husband. "'That comes of your talking,' said she. But the Count had already recovered from his excitement. "'Come, come,' said he, "'here's a fine warrior. No, nonsense. You must study.' "'It's not nonsense, Papa. Fedya Obolensky is younger than I, and he's going too. Besides, all the same, I can't study now when—" Petya stopped short, flushed till he perspired, but still got out the words, "'When our fatherland is in danger!' 
That'll do, that'll do. Nonsense." But you said yourself that we would sacrifice everything. Petra, be quiet, I tell you, cried the Count, with a glance at his wife, who had turned pale and was staring fixedly at her son. And I tell you, Peter Kirillich here will also tell you. Nonsense, I tell you. Your mother's milk has hardly dried on your lips, and you want to go into the army. There, there, I tell you." And the Count moved to go out of the room, taking the papers, probably to reread them in his study before having a nap. "'Well, Peter Kirillich, let's go and have a smoke,' he said. Pierre was agitated and undecided. Natasha's unwontedly brilliant eyes, continually glancing at him with a more than cordial look, had reduced him to this condition. "'No, I think I'll go home.' "'Home?' Why, you meant to spend the evening with us. You don't often come nowadays as it is. And this girl of mine," said the Count, good-naturedly pointing to Natasha, "'only brightens up when you're here.' "'Yes, I had forgotten. I really must go home. Business,' said Pierre hurriedly. "'Well, then, au revoir,' said the Count, and went out of the room. "'Why are you going? Why are you upset?' asked Natasha and she looked challengingly into Pierre's eyes. "'Because I love you,' was what he wanted to say, but he did not say it, and only blushed till the tears came and lowered his eyes. "'Because it is better for me to come less often. Because—no, simply I have business.' "'Why? No, tell me!' Natasha began resolutely and suddenly stopped. They looked at each other with dismayed and embarrassed faces. He tried to smile, but could not. His smile expressed suffering, and he silently kissed her hand and went out. Pierre made up his mind not to go to the Rostovs any more. End of Book Nine, Chapter Twenty Book Nine, Chapter Twenty One Of War and Peace Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Twenty One. After the definite refusal he had received, Petya went to his room and there locked himself in and wept bitterly. When he came in to tea, silent, morose, and with tear-stained face, everybody pretended not to notice anything. Next day the Emperor arrived in Moscow, and several of the Rostov's domestic serfs begged permission to go to have a look at him. That morning Petya was a long time dressing, and arranging his hair and collar to look like a grown-up man. He frowned before his looking-glass, gesticulated, shrugged his shoulders, and finally, without saying a word to anyone, took his cap and left the house by the back door, trying to avoid notice. Petya decided to go straight to where the Emperor was, and to explain frankly to some gentleman-in-waiting, he imagined the Emperor to be always surrounded by gentlemen-in-waiting, that he, Count Rostov, in spite of his youth, wished to serve his country. That youth could be no hindrance to loyalty, and that he was ready to. While dressing, Petya had prepared many fine things he meant to say to the gentleman-in-waiting. It was on the very fact of being so young that Petya counted for success in reaching the Emperor. He even thought how surprised everyone would be at his youthfulness, 
and yet in the arrangement of his collar and hair and by his sedate deliberate walk he wished to appear a grown-up man. But the farther he went, and the more his attention was diverted by the ever-increasing crowds moving toward the Kremlin, the less he remembered to walk with the sedateness and deliberation of a man. As he approached the Kremlin, he even began to avoid being crushed, and resolutely stuck out his elbows in a menacing way. But within the Trinity Gateway he was so pressed to the wall by people, who probably were unaware of the patriotic intentions with which he had come, that in spite of all his determination he had to give in, and stop while carriages passed in, rumbling beneath the archway. Beside Petya stood a peasant woman, a footman, two tradesmen, and a discharged soldier. After standing some time in the gateway, Petya tried to move forward in front of the others without waiting for all the carriages to pass, and he began resolutely working his way with his elbows, but the woman just in front of him, who was the first against whom he directed his efforts, angrily shouted at him, "'What are you shouting for, young lordling? Don't you see we're all standing still? Then why push?' "'Anybody can shove,' said the footman, and also began working his elbows to such effect that he pushed Petya into a very filthy corner of the gateway. Petya wiped his perspiring face with his hands and pulled up the damp collar which he had arranged so well at home to seem like a man's. He felt that he no longer looked presentable, and feared that if he were now to approach the gentleman-in-waiting in that plight he would not be admitted to the Emperor. But it was impossible to smarten oneself up or move to another place because of the crowd. One of the generals who drove past was an acquaintance of the Rostovs, and Petya thought of asking his help, but came to the conclusion that that would not be a manly thing to do. When the carriages had all passed in, the crowd, carrying Petya with it, streamed forward into the Kremlin Square, which was already full of people. There were people not only in the square but everywhere, on the slopes and on the roofs. As soon as Petya found himself in the square he clearly heard the sound of bells and the joyous voices of the crowd that filled the whole Kremlin. For a while the crowd was less dense, but suddenly all heads were bared and everyone rushed forward in one direction. Petya was being pressed so hard that he could scarcely breathe, and everybody shouted, Hurrah! 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 Petya stood on tiptoe and pushed and pinched, but could see nothing except the people about him. All the faces bore the same expression of excitement and enthusiasm. A tradesman's wife standing beside Petya sobbed, and the tears ran down her cheeks. Father! Angel! Dear one! she kept repeating, wiping away her tears with her fingers. Hurrah! was heard on all sides. For a moment the crowd stood still, but then it made another rush forward. Quite beside himself, Petya, clinching his teeth and rolling his eyes ferociously, pushed forward, elbowing his way and shouting hurrah, as if he were prepared that instant to kill himself and everyone else but on both sides of him other people with similarly ferocious faces pushed forward, and everybody shouted hurrah. "'So this is what the Emperor is,' thought Petya. "'No, I can't petition him myself. That would be too bold.' But in spite of this he continued to struggle desperately forward, and from between the backs of those in front he caught glimpses of an open space with a strip of red cloth spread out on it. 
but just then the crowd swayed back. The police in front were pushing back those who had pressed too close to the procession. The Emperor was passing from the palace to the Cathedral of the Assumption, and Petya unexpectedly received such a blow on his side and ribs, and was squeezed so hard that suddenly everything grew dim before his eyes and he lost consciousness. When he came to himself, a man of clerical appearance with a tuft of grey hair at the back of his head and wearing a shabby blue cassock, probably a church clerk and chanter, was holding him under the arm with one hand while warding off the pressure of the crowd with the other. "'You've crushed the young gentleman,' said the clerk. "'What are you up to? Gently! They've crushed him! Crushed him!' The Emperor entered the Cathedral of the Assumption. The crowd spread out again more evenly and the clerk led Petya, pale and breathless, to the Tsar cannon. Several people were sorry for Petya, and suddenly a crowd turned toward him and pressed round him. Those who stood nearest him attended to him, unbuttoned his coat, seated him on the raised platform of the cannon, and reproached those others, whoever they might be, who had crushed him. "'One might easily get killed that way. What do they mean by it? Killing people! Poor dear! He's as white as a sheet," various voices were heard saying. Petya soon came to himself, the color returned to his face, the pain had passed, and at the cost of that temporary unpleasantness he had obtained a place by the cannon, from where he hoped to see the Emperor, who would be returning that way. Petya no longer thought of presenting his petition. If he could only see the Emperor, he would be happy. While the service was proceeding in the Cathedral of the Assumption, it was a combined service of prayer on the occasion of the Emperor's arrival and of thanksgiving for the conclusion of peace with the Turks. The crowd outside spread out and hawkers appeared, selling kvass, gingerbread, and poppy-seed sweets, of which Petya was particularly fond, and ordinary conversation could again be heard. A tradesman's wife was showing a rent in her shawl and telling how much the shawl had cost. Another was saying that all silk goods had now got dear. The clerk who had rescued Petya was talking to a functionary about the priests who were officiating that day with the bishop. The clerk several times used the word plenary, of the service, a word Petya did not understand. Two young citizens were joking with some serf girls who were cracking nuts. All these conversations, especially the joking with the girls, were such as might have had a particular charm for Petya at his age, but they did not interest him now. He sat on his elevation, the pedestal of the cannon, still agitated as before by the thought of the Emperor and by his love for him. The feeling of pain and fear he had experienced when he was being crushed, together with that of rapture, still further intensified his sense of the importance of the occasion. Suddenly the sound of a firing of cannon was heard from the embankment to celebrate the signing of peace with the Turks, and the crowd rushed impetuously toward the embankment to watch the firing. Petya too would have run there, but the clerk who had taken the young gentleman under his protection stopped him. The firing was still proceeding when officers, generals, and gentlemen-in-waiting came running out of the cathedral, and after them others in a more leisurely manner. Caps were again raised, and those who had run to look at the cannon ran back again. At least four men in uniforms and sashes emerged from the cathedral doors. "'Hurrah! Hurrah!' shouted the crowd again. "'Which is he? Which?' 
asked Petya in a tearful voice of those around him, but no one answered him, everybody was too excited. And Petya, fixing on one of those four men, whom he could not clearly see for the tears of joy that filled his eyes, concentrated all his enthusiasm on him. Though it happened not to be the Emperor, frantically shouting, Hurrah! and resolved that tomorrow, come what might, he would join the army. The crowd ran after the Emperor, followed him to the palace, and began to disperse. It was already late, and Petya had not eaten anything and was drenched with perspiration, yet he did not go home but stood with that diminishing but still considerable crowd before the palace while the Emperor dined, looking in at the palace windows, expecting he knew not what and envying alike the notables he saw arriving at the entrance to dine with the Emperor and the court footmen who served at table, glimpses of whom could be seen through the windows. While the Emperor was dining, Valuev, looking out of the window, said, "'The people are still hoping to see Your Majesty again.' The dinner was nearly over, and the Emperor, munching a biscuit, rose and went out onto the balcony. The people, with Petya among them, rushed toward the balcony. "'Angel! Dear one! Hurrah! Father!' cried the crowd, and Petya with it. And again, the women and men of weaker mould, Petya among them, wept with joy. A largish piece of the biscuit the Emperor was holding in his hand broke off, fell on the balcony parapet, and then to the ground. A coachman in a jerkin, who stood nearest, sprang forward and snatched it up. Several people in the crowd rushed at the coachman. Seeing this, the Emperor had a plateful of biscuits brought him and began throwing them down from the balcony. Petya's eyes grew bloodshot, and still more excited by the danger of being crushed, he rushed at the biscuits. He did not know why, but he had to have a biscuit from the Tsar's hand, and he felt that he must not give way. He sprang forward and upset an old woman who was catching at a biscuit. The old woman did not consider herself defeated, though she was lying on the ground. She grabbed at some biscuits, but her hand did not reach them. Petya pushed her hand away with his knee, seized a biscuit, and as if fearing to be too late, again shouted hurrah with a voice already hoarse. The Emperor went in, and after that the greater part of the crowd began to disperse. "'There! I said if only we waited, and so it was!' was being joyfully said by various people. Happy as Petya was, he felt sad at having to go home knowing that all the enjoyment of that day was over. He did not go straight home from the Kremlin but called on his friend Obolensky, who was fifteen and was also entering the regiment. On returning home Petya announced resolutely and firmly that if he was not allowed to enter the service he would run away. And next day Count Ilya Rostov, though he had not yet quite yielded, went to inquire how he could arrange for Petya to serve where there would be least danger. End of Book Nine, Chapter Twenty One. Book Nine, Chapter Twenty Two, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Twenty Two. Two days later, on the fifteenth of July, an immense number of carriages were standing outside the Sloboda Palace. 
the great halls were full. In the first were the nobility and gentry in their uniforms, in the second bearded merchants in full-skirted coats of blue cloth and wearing medals. In the nobleman's hall there was an incessant movement and buzz of voices. The chief magnate sat on high-backed chairs at a large table under the portrait of the emperor, but most of the gentry were strolling about the room. All these nobles, whom Pierre met every day at the club or in their own houses, were in uniform, some in that of Catherine's day, others in that of Emperor Paul, others again in the new uniforms of Alexander's time, or the ordinary uniform of the nobility, and the general characteristic of being in uniform imparted something strange and fantastic to these diverse and familiar personalities, both old and young. The old men, dim-eyed, toothless, bald, sallow, and bloated, or gaunt and wrinkled, were especially striking. For the most part they sat quietly in their places and were silent, or if they walked about and talked, attached themselves to someone younger. On all these faces, as on the faces of the crowd Petya had seen in the square, there was a striking contradiction. The general expectation of a solemn event, and at the same time the everyday interest in a Boston card-party, Peter the Cook, Zaneda Dmitrievna's health, and so on. Pierre was there, too, buttoned up since early morning in a nobleman's uniform that had become too tight for him. He was agitated. This extraordinary gathering, not only of nobles, but also of the merchant class, les états généraux, states-general, evoked in him a whole series of ideas he had long laid aside but which were deeply graven in his soul. Thoughts of the Contrat Social and the French Revolution. The words that had struck him in the Emperor's appeal, that the Sovereign was coming to the capital for consultation with his people, strengthened this idea. And imagining that in this direction something important which he had long awaited was drawing near, he strolled about watching and listening to conversations, but nowhere finding any confirmation of the ideas that occupied him. The Emperor's manifesto was read, evoking enthusiasm, and then all moved about discussing it. Besides the ordinary topics of conversation, Pierre heard questions of where the marshals of the nobility were to stand when the Emperor entered, when a ball should be given in the Emperor's honor, whether they should group themselves by districts or by whole provinces, and so on. But as soon as the war was touched on, or what the nobility had been convened for, the talk became undecided and indefinite. Then all preferred listening to speaking. A middle-aged man, handsome and virile, in the uniform of a retired naval officer, was speaking in one of the rooms, and a small crowd was pressing round him. Pierre went up to the circle that had formed round the speaker and listened. Count Ilya Rostov, in a military uniform of Catherine's time, was sauntering with a pleasant smile among the crowd, with all of whom he was acquainted. He too approached that group and listened with a kindly smile and nods of approval, as he always did, to what the speaker was saying. The retired naval man was speaking very boldly, as was evident from the expression on the faces of the listeners, and from the fact that some people Pierre knew as the meekest and quietest of men walked away disapprovingly or expressed disagreement with him. Pierre pushed his way to the middle of the group, listened, and convinced himself that the man was indeed a liberal but a views quite different from his own. The naval officer spoke in a particularly sonorous, musical, and aristocratic baritone voice, pleasantly swallowing his R's and generally slurring his consonants. 
the voice of a man calling out to his servant, "'Here, bring me my pipe!' It was indicative of dissipation and the exercise of authority. "'What if the Smolensk people have offered to waze militia for the Emperor? Are we to take Smolensk as our pattern? If the noble aristocracy of the province of Moscow thinks fit, it can show its loyalty to our sovereign, the Emperor, in other ways. Have we forgotten the wazing of the militia in the year seven? All that did was to enrich the priest's sons and thieves and robbers." Count Ilya Rostov smiled blandly and nodded approval. "'And was our militia of any use to the Empire? Not at all. It only ruined our farming. Better have another conscription or our men will return neither soldiers nor peasants, and will get only depravity from them. The nobility don't grudge their lives. Every one of us will go and bring in more recruits, and the sovereign—that was the way he referred to the emperor—need only say the word, and we'll all die for him," added the orator with animation. Count Rostov's mouth watered with pleasure, and he nudged Pierre, but Pierre wanted to speak himself. He pushed forward, feeling stirred, but not yet sure what stirred him or what he would say. Scarcely had he opened his mouth when one of the senators, a man without a tooth in his head, with a shrewd though angry expression, standing near the first speaker, interrupted him. Evidently accustomed to managing debates and to maintaining an argument, he began in low but distinct tones. "'I imagine, sir,' said he, mumbling with his toothless mouth, that we have been summoned here not to discuss whether it's best for the Empire at the present moment to adopt conscription or to call out the militia. We have been summoned to reply to the appeal with which our sovereign the Emperor has honoured us. But to judge what is best, conscription or the militia, we can leave to the supreme authority." Pierre suddenly saw an outlet for his excitement. He hardened his heart against the senator who was introducing this set and narrow attitude into the deliberations of the nobility. Pierre stepped forward and interrupted him. He himself did not know what he would say, but he began to speak eagerly, occasionally lapsing into French or expressing himself in bookish Russian. "'Excuse me, Your Excellency,' he began. He was well acquainted with the senator, but thought it necessary on this occasion to address him formally. "'Though I don't agree with the gentleman, he hesitated. He wished to say, Mon très honorable préopinant, my very honorable opponent. With the gentleman, whom I have not the honor of knowing, I suppose that the nobility have been summoned not merely to express their sympathy and enthusiasm, but also to consider the means by which we can assist our fatherland. I imagine, he went on warming to his subject, that the Emperor himself would not be satisfied to find us merely owners of serfs whom we are willing to devote to his service, and share a canon, food for cannon, we are ready to make of ourselves, and not to obtain from us any co-co-counsel." Many persons withdrew from the circle, noticing the senator's sarcastic smile and the freedom of Pierre's remarks. Only Count Rostov was pleased with them, as he had been pleased with those of the naval officer, the senator, and in general with whatever speech he had last heard. "'I think that before discussing these questions,' Pierre continued, "'we should ask the Emperor, 
most respectfully ask His Majesty to let us know the number of our troops and the position in which our army and our forces now are, and then—but scarcely had Pierre uttered these words before he was attacked from three sides. The most vigorous attack came from an old acquaintance, a Boston player, who had always been well disposed toward him, Stepan Stepanovich Adroxin. Adroxin was in uniform, and whether, as a result of the uniform or from some other cause, Pierre saw before him quite a different man. With a sudden expression of malevolence on his aged face, Adraxin shouted at Pierre, "'In the first place, I tell you we have no right to question the Emperor about that. And secondly, if the Russian nobility had that right, the Emperor could not answer such a question. The troops are moved according to the enemy's movements, and the number of men increases and decreases.' Another voice, that of a nobleman of medium height and about forty years of age, whom Pierre had formerly met at the gypsies and knew as a bad card-player, and who also, transformed by his uniform, came up to Pierre, interrupted Adraxin. "'Yes, and this is not a time for discussing,' he continued, "'but for acting. There is war in Russia. The enemy is advancing to destroy Russia, to desecrate the tombs of our fathers, to carry off our wives and children.' The nobleman smote his breast. "'We will all arise. Every one of us will go, for our father the Tsar!' he shouted, rolling his bloodshot eyes. Several approving voices were heard in the crowd. "'We are Russians, and will not grudge our blood in defense of our faith, the throne, and the fatherland. We must cease raving if we are sons of our fatherland. We will show Europe how Russia rises to the defense of Russia.' Pierre wished to reply, but could not get in a word. He felt that his words, apart from what meaning they conveyed, were less audible than the sound of his opponent's voice. Count Rostov at the back of the crowd was expressing approval. Several persons, briskly turning a shoulder to the orator at the end of a phrase, said, "'That's right, quite right, just so!' Pierre wished to say that he was ready to sacrifice his money, his serfs, or himself, only one ought to know the state of affairs in order to be able to improve it, but he was unable to speak. Many voices shouted and talked at the same time, so that Count Rostov had not time to signify his approval of them all, and the group increased, dispersed, reformed, and then moved with a hum of talk into the largest hall and to the big table. Not only was Pierre's attempt to speak unsuccessful, but he was rudely interrupted, pushed aside, and people turned away from him as from a common enemy. This happened not because they were displeased by the substance of his speech, which had even been forgotten after the many subsequent speeches, but to animate it the crowd needed a tangible object to love and a tangible object to hate. Pierre became the latter. Many other orators spoke after the excited nobleman and all in the same tone. Many spoke eloquently and with originality. Glinka, the editor of the Russian Messenger, who was recognized, cries of, "'Author! Author!' were heard in the crowd, said that, "'Hell must be repulsed by hell,' and that he had seen a child smiling at lightning flashes and thunderclaps, but we will not be that child!' "'Yes, yes, at thunderclaps!' was repeated approvingly in the back rows of the crowd. 
the crowd drew up to the large table, at which sat gray-haired or bald seventy-year-old magnates, uniformed and besashed, almost all of whom Pierre had seen in their own homes with their buffoons, or playing Boston at the clubs. With an incessant hum of voices the crowd advanced to the table. Pressed by the throng against the high backs of the chairs, the orators spoke one after another, and sometimes two together. Those standing behind noticed what a speaker omitted to say and hastened to supply it. Others in that heat and crush racked their brains to find some thought and hastened to utter it. The old magnates, whom Pierre knew, sat and turned to look first at one and then at another, and their faces, for the most part, only expressed the fact that they found it very hot. Pierre, however, felt excited, and the general desire to show that they were ready to go to all lengths, which found expression in the tones and looks more than in the substance of the speeches, infected him too. He did not renounce his opinions, but felt himself in some way to blame and wished to justify himself. I only said that it would be more to the purpose to make sacrifices when we know what is needed," said he, trying to be heard above the other voices. One of the old men nearest to him looked round, but his attention was immediately diverted by an exclamation at the other side of the table. "'Yes, Moscow will be surrendered! She will be our expiation!' shouted one man. "'He is the enemy of mankind!' cried another. "'Allow me to speak! Gentlemen, you are crushing me!' End of Book Nine, Chapter Twenty-Two Book Nine, Chapter Twenty Three of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Nine, Chapter Twenty Three. At that moment, Count Rostopchin, with his protruding chin and alert eyes, wearing the uniform of a general with sash over his shoulder, entered the room, stepping briskly to the front of the crowd of gentry. Our sovereign the emperor will be here in a moment," said Rostopchin. I am straight from the palace. Seeing the position we are in, I think there is little need for discussion. The emperor has deigned to summon us and the merchants. Millions will pour forth from there," he pointed to the merchants' hall, but our business is to supply men and not spare ourselves. That is the least we can do. A conference took place confined to the magnate sitting at the table. The whole consultation passed more than quietly. After all the preceding noise, the sound of their old voices saying one after another, I agree, or for variety, I too am of that opinion, and so on had even a mournful effect. The secretary was told to write down the resolution of the Moscow nobility and gentry, that they would furnish ten men, fully equipped, out of every thousand serfs, as the Smolensk gentry had done. Their chairs made a scraping noise as the gentlemen who had conferred rose with apparent relief, and began walking up and down, arm in arm, to stretch their legs and converse in couples. "'The Emperor! The Emperor!' a sudden cry resounded through the halls, and the whole throng hurried to the entrance. The Emperor entered the hall through a broad path between two lines of nobles. Every face expressed respectful, awe-struck curiosity. Pierre stood rather far off and could not hear all that the Emperor said. From what he did hear, he understood that the Emperor spoke of the danger threatening the Empire, and of the hopes he placed on the Moscow nobility. 
he was answered by a voice which informed him of the resolution just arrived at. "'Gentlemen,' said the Emperor, with a quivering voice. There was a rustling among the crowd, and it again subsided, so that Pierre distinctly heard the pleasantly human voice of the Emperor saying with emotion, "'I never doubted the devotion of the Russian nobles, but to-day it has surpassed my expectations. I thank you in the name of the Fatherland. Gentlemen, let us act. Time is most precious.' The Emperor ceased speaking. The crowd began pressing round him, and rapturous exclamations were heard from all sides. "'Yes, most precious, a royal word,' said Count Rostov with a sob. He stood at the back, and though he had heard hardly anything, understood everything in his own way. From the hall of the nobility the Emperor went to that of the merchants. There he remained about ten minutes. Pierre was among those who saw him come out from the merchants' hall with tears of emotion in his eyes. As became known later, he had scarcely begun to address the merchants before tears gushed from his eyes and he concluded in a trembling voice. When Pierre saw the Emperor, he was coming out accompanied by two merchants, one of whom Pierre knew, a fat Atkupchik. The other was the mayor, a man with a thin sallow face and narrow beard. Both were weeping. Tears filled the thin man's eyes, and the fat Utkupshik sobbed outright like a child and kept repeating, "'Our lives and property! Take them, Your Majesty!' Pierre's one feeling at the moment was a desire to show that he was ready to go all lengths, and was prepared to sacrifice everything. He now felt ashamed of his speech with its constitutional tendency, and sought an opportunity of effacing it. Having heard that Count Mamanov was furnishing a regiment, Bazukov at once informed Rostopchin that he would give a thousand men and their maintenance. Old Rostov could not tell his wife of what had passed without tears, and at once consented to Petya's request and went himself to enter his name. Next day the Emperor left Moscow. The assembled nobles all took off their uniforms and settled down again in their homes and clubs and not without some groans gave orders to their stewards about the enrollment, feeling amazed themselves at what they had done. End of Book Nine, Chapter Twenty Three Book Ten, Chapter One of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, eighteen twelve, Chapter One. Napoleon began the war with Russia because he could not resist going to Dresden, could not help having his head turned by the homage he received, could not help donning a Polish uniform and yielding to the stimulating influence of a June morning, and could not refrain from bursts of anger in the presence of Karakin and then of Balashev. Alexander refused negotiations because he felt himself to be personally insulted. Barclay de Tolly tried to command the army in the best way, because he wished to fulfill his duty and earn fame as a great commander. Rostov charged the French because he could not restrain his wish for a gallop across a level field. And in the same way the innumerable people who took part in the war acted in accord with their personal characteristics, habits, circumstances, and aims. They were moved by fear or vanity, rejoiced or were indignant. 
reasoned, imagining that they knew what they were doing and did it of their own free will, but they all were involuntary tools of history, carrying on a work concealed from them but comprehensible to us. Such is the inevitable fate of men of action, and the higher they stand in the social hierarchy, the less they are free. The actors of 1812 have long since left the stage, their personal interests have vanished leaving no trace, and nothing remains of that time but its historic results. Providence compelled all these men, striving to attain personal aims, to further the accomplishment of a stupendous result no one of them at all expected, neither Napoleon nor Alexander, nor still less any of those who did the actual fighting. The cause of the destruction of the French army in 1812 is clear to us now. No one will deny that the cause was, on the one hand, its advance into the heart of Russia late in the season, without any preparation for a winter campaign. And, on the other, the character given to the war by the burning of Russian towns, and the hatred of the foe this aroused among the Russian people. But no one at the time foresaw, what now seems so evident, that this was the only way an army of eight hundred thousand men, the best in the world, led by the best general, could be destroyed in conflict with a raw army of half its numerical strength, and led by inexperienced commanders as the Russian army was. Not only did no one see this, but on the Russian side every effort was made to hinder the only thing that could save Russia, while on the French side, despite Napoleon's experience and so-called military genius, every effort was directed to pushing on to Moscow at the end of the summer that is, to doing the very thing that was bound to lead to destruction. In historical works on the year 1812, French writers are very fond of saying that Napoleon felt the danger of extending his line, that he sawed a battle, and that his marshals advised him to stop at Smolensk, and of making similar statements to show that the danger of the campaign was even then understood. Russian authors are still fonder of telling us that from the commencement of the campaign a Scythian war-plan was adopted to lure Napoleon into the depths of Russia, and this plan some of them attribute to Fuel, others to a certain Frenchman, others to Toll, and others again to Alexander himself, pointing to notes, projects, and letters which contain hints of such a line of action. But all these hints at what happened, both from the French side and the Russian, are advanced only because they fit in with the event. Had that event not occurred, these hints would have been forgotten, as we have forgotten the thousands and millions of hints and expectations to the contrary, which were current then, but have now been forgotten, because the event falsified them. There are always so many conjectures as to the issue of any event, that however it may end, there will always be people to say, I said then that it would be so quite forgetting that, amid their innumerable conjectures, many were to quite the contrary effect. Conjectures as to Napoleon's awareness of the danger of extending his line, and on the Russian side as to luring the enemy into the depths of Russia, are evidently of that kind, and only by much straining can historians attribute such conceptions to Napoleon and his marshals, or such plans to the Russian commanders. All the facts are in flat contradiction to such conjectures. During the whole period of the war, not only was there no wish on the Russian side to draw the French into the heart of the country, but from their first entry into Russia everything was done to stop them. 
and not only was Napoleon not afraid to extend his line, but he welcomed every step forward as a triumph, and did not seek battle as eagerly as in former campaigns, but very lazily. At the very beginning of the war our armies were divided, and our sole aim was to unite them, though uniting the armies was no advantage if we meant to retire and lure the enemy into the depths of the country. Our emperor joined the army to encourage it to defend every inch of Russian soil and not to retreat. The enormous Drissa camp was formed on Fuel's plan, and there was no intention of retiring farther. The emperor reproached the commanders-in-chief for every step they retired. He could not bear the idea of letting the enemy even reach Smolensk, still less could he contemplate the burning of Moscow. And when our armies did unite, he was displeased that Smolensk was abandoned and burned without a general engagement having been fought under its walls. So thought the Emperor, and the Russian commanders and people were still more provoked at the thought that our forces were retreating into the depths of the country. Napoleon, having cut our armies apart, advanced far into the country, and missed several chances of forcing an engagement. In August he was at Smolensk, and thought only of how to advance farther, though, as we now see, that advance was evidently ruinous to him. The facts clearly show that Napoleon did not foresee the danger of the advance on Moscow, nor did Alexander and the Russian commanders then think of luring Napoleon on, but quite the contrary. The luring of Napoleon into the depths of the country was not a result of any plan, for no one believed it to be possible. It resulted from a most complex interplay of intrigues, aims, and wishes among those who took part in the war and had no perception whatever of the inevitable, or of the one way of saving Russia. Everything came about fortuitously. The armies were divided at the commencement of the campaign. We tried to unite them, with the evident intention of giving battle and checking the enemy's advance, and by this effort to unite them while avoiding battle with a much stronger enemy, and necessarily withdrawing the armies at an acute angle, we led the French on to Smolensk. But we withdrew at an acute angle not only because the French advanced between our two armies. The angle became still more acute, and we withdrew still farther, because Barclay de Tolly was an unpopular foreigner disliked by Bagradion, who would come under his command, and Bagradion, being in command of the Second Army, tried to postpone joining up and coming under Barclay's command as long as he could. Bagradion was slow in effecting the junction, though that was the chief aim of all at headquarters, because, as he alleged, he exposed his army to danger on this march, and it was best for him to retire more to the left and more to the south, worrying the enemy from flank and rear and securing from the Ukraine recruits for his army and it looks as if he planned this in order not to come under the command of the detested foreigner Barclay, whose rank was inferior to his own. The Emperor was with the army to encourage it, but his presence and ignorance of what steps to take, and the enormous number of advisers and plans, destroyed the First Army's energy, and it retired. The intention was to make a stand at the Drissa camp, but Paolucci, aiming at becoming commander-in-chief, unexpectedly employed his energy to influence Alexander, and Fuel's whole plan was abandoned and the command entrusted to Barclay. But as Barclay did not inspire confidence, his power was limited. The armies were divided, 
there was no unity of command, and Barclay was unpopular. But from this confusion, division, and the unpopularity of the foreign commander-in-chief, there resulted on the one hand indecision and the avoidance of a battle, which we could not have refrained from had the armies been united and had someone else, instead of Barclay, been in command and on the other an ever-increasing indignation against the foreigners and an increase in patriotic zeal. At last the Emperor left the army, and as the most convenient and indeed the only pretext for his departure, it was decided that it was necessary for him to inspire the people in the capitals and arouse the nation in general to a patriotic war. And by his visit of the Emperor to Moscow the strength of the Russian army was trebled. He left in order not to obstruct the commander-in-chief's undivided control of the army, and hoping that more decisive action would then be taken. But the command of the armies became still more confused and enfeebled. Benningsen, the Tsarevich, and a swarm of adjutants-general remained with the army to keep the commander-in-chief under observation and arouse his energy, and Barclay, feeling less free than ever under the observation of all these eyes of the Emperor, became still more cautious of undertaking any decisive action and avoided giving battle. Barclay stood for caution. The Tsarevich hinted at treachery and demanded a general engagement. Lubomirsky, Boronitsky, Volochsky, and the others of that group stirred up so much trouble that Barclay, under pretext of sending papers to the Emperor, dispatched these Polish adjutants-general to Petersburg and plunged into an open struggle with Benningsen and the Tsarevich. At Smolensk the armies at last reunited, much as Bagration disliked it. Bagration drove up in a carriage to the house occupied by Barclay. Barclay donned his sash and came out to meet and report to his senior officer, Bagration. Despite his seniority in rank, Bagration, in this contest of magnanimity, took his orders from Barclay, but having submitted, agreed with him less than ever. By the Emperor's orders, Bagration reported direct to him. He wrote to Arakcheyev, the Emperor's confidant, "'It must be as my sovereign pleases, but I cannot work with the minister,' meaning Barclay. "'For God's sake, send me somewhere else, if only in command of a regiment. I cannot stand it here. Headquarters are so full of Germans that a Russian cannot exist, and there is no sense in anything.' I thought I was really serving my sovereign and the fatherland, but it turns out that I am serving Barclay. I confess I do not want to." The swarm of Bronitskys and Vininskorodas and their like still further embittered the relations between the commanders-in-chief, and even less unity resulted. Preparations were made to fight the French before Smolensk. A general was sent to survey the position. This general, hating Barclay, rode to visit a friend of his own, a corps commander, and having spent the day with him, returned to Barclay and condemned, as unsuitable from every point of view, the battleground he had not seen. While disputes and intrigues were going on about the future field of battle, and while we were looking for the French, having lost touch with them, the French stumbled upon Neverovsky's division and reached the walls of Smolensk. It was necessary to fight an unexpected battle at Smolensk to save our lines of communication. The battle was fought and thousands were killed on both sides. Smolensk was abandoned contrary to the wishes of the Emperor and of the whole people. 
but Smolensk was burned by its own inhabitants who had been misled by their governor. And these ruined inhabitants, setting an example to other Russians, went to Moscow thinking only of their own losses but kindling hatred of the foe. Napoleon advanced farther and we retired, thus arriving at the very result which caused his destruction. End of Book Ten, Chapter One When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.